Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. This is Tavis Killian with Rare Petro, bringing you another episode of Monday Madness on October 18th, 2021. Have you heard about the newest amusement park opening up known as The Rig? It's a new Saudi Arabian project with big ambitions. They plan to convert a few offshore platforms into a sort of amusement park slash hotel combination that allows you to pursue all of your favorite extreme sports, adventures, and relaxation. I applied for the press kit to try and get some more information because, after all, I am generating media. So, who knows, we might have a special segment coming out about this project as it's just too damn cool. But I know you didn't come here to talk about the finest ways to go on vacation. I, for one, probably don't make enough for that resort to even look at me. So let's spend our time analyzing the biggest statistics and news stories within the world of energy right now. First things first, WTI prices. I've got good news and bad news. The bad news is that the price is already down this morning. But the good news is that it is still at about $82 at the time of writing. Just a month ago, we were at 70 flat as we fought so hard to bust through that ceiling. And it's only been up from there. This is one of the most accelerated periods of price increase we have seen in quite some time, so expect WTI to observe some technical resistance sometime soon. I don't think the resistance will force the price down, but it might sit idly like the natural gas price. Speaking of natural gas, it is still higher than it was a month ago, but still falling from a peak of $6. I would not be surprised if it fell as low as $5.60 in the next few weeks, but I really doubt it will be spending too much time down there. As you know, we've got plenty of reasons to believe both these commodities will see higher prices in the next few quarters, and I, for one, am excited about winter. Well, I mean, excited to see what the prices do, but not excited to pay for the energy at those prices. Next, the rig count. A great week here as the U.S. finds itself up 10 rigs, one of the biggest increases we've seen in many weeks. Looks like people are confident that oil prices will remain high for quite some time, so more are beginning the process of drilling new wells. This is good because the duck count is quickly approaching zero, and we can't have that as it would cause some severe price shocks further down the road. Basin by basin, the can of Woodford and the Eagleford led with two new rigs each. The Permian actually lives in the shadow of the Eagleford today, as it only added one rig. Love to see an upset. The Haynesville and the Utica were the only two major basins to report a rig loss. State by state, we have Texas with three, Louisiana, Oklahoma with two, West Virginia and Alaska with one, and New Mexico and Ohio lost one. These rigs are mostly directional and all targeting oil. This leaves us at a total of 543, which is 261 more than we had this time last year. Expect this statistic to continue to perform well for the next few months. Lastly, the inventory report, which you can have much more fun reading on www.rarepetro.com and our weekly Thirsty Thursday report. Here's a quick summary if you missed it. The EIA took their sweet time to release their data following Monday's holiday, but it shows that we witnessed a build of more than 6 million barrels. The API came strolling through with a modest prediction of a 140,000 barrel build, which is about the most technical way to say nothing will happen, but it turns out they actually witnessed a more than 5 million barrel build. When both the EIA and API predict builds this big, you know that there's something going on behind the scenes. But what is it? Refineries are operating at roughly 85% capacity or above lately. Sure, the ports are blocked up in LA, but crude is still imported into other ports of the country at rates that are lower than 2020's average. Again, we have to look at the bigger picture. Let's take a look at inventory levels through the past about year and a half. If you look at the inventory graph over the past time, it's been absolutely plummeting, just quickly approaching zero. Even if we see a 6 million barrel build, it is absolutely dwarfed by the 120 million barrel decrease we've witnessed from July of 2020 to the present. 
Yes, now it is in a historically stable range, but this is too great a change over too short a period of time for markets to withstand. Gasoline inventories decreased by about 2 million barrels in the past week. Still, they remain in a historically significant territory, and the supply changes have not really been nearly as dramatic as oil in the past year. Even though gasoline inventories are comparatively much more stable, the average price for fuel still found a way to go up a little more than five cents for the second week in a row. That's two straight weeks of big jumps. I, for one, thought I'd found a great deal on gasoline last week, but it turns out you have to be a member of Sam's Club to get those deals, so I ended up waiting in line for nothing. Still, increased fuel costs are a problem everywhere. Last week, eight states at the start of the week averaged prices under $3 a gallon, and by the end of the week, it was only 5 and it could be down to 2 or none by the end of this week. In fact, it is getting to be so bad that the White House is asking U.S. oil companies to help lower the fuel costs, but we'll talk a little more about that later. Distillate inventories are fighting to remain flat, while propane's run-up seems to be coming to a halt. Winter is going to provide an immense amount of downward pressure on all of these commodity stocks, especially with the gas shortage forcing power plants to consider burning oil for energy all over the world. The energy crisis is here, and many people are blind as to why it's an issue. But that is the end of the statistics, and now time to get into that story. So the White House has begun reaching out to producers within the U.S. so that they can talk about strategies that they can use to break down rising fuel costs. I know some of you immediately thought, well, we could start with legislation that doesn't make it harder to extract our nation's natural resources, but I think we are quite a ways from reaching any policies that will do that. One oil executive familiar with the matter said that any call by the White House for an increase in U.S. production would likely fall on deaf ears, but this executive did not want to be identified, and I think that perfectly sums up the situation we have. After eight months of the new administration's policies, Hammering home their hate for hydrocarbons, a patriotic call to produce more for the good of the people, at whatever the cost, would likely have no effect. These companies are already operating on razor-thin margins, and drilling new wells for the greater good likely won't help their balance sheets in the short term. Not to mention the fact that it takes months for a new well to be drilled and completed. Even if companies wanted to comply, we may not see results until Q2 of next year. The imbalance is moving much faster than the factors that are able to address it. I think Anne Bradbury, the CEO of American Exploration and Production Council, put it best when she said, By pursuing policies that restrict oil supply and make it harder to produce oil and natural gas here in America, Americans will have to pay more for their energy. Succinct and highlights the root of the issues that might cause harm to people this winter, but still, people's opinions are seemingly delusional. I'm not trying to turn this into a podcast of personal attacks, but there is a paragraph from an opinion piece that a Bloomberg columnist wrote, I don't want to reveal their name. You can really find it if you want to, but I want to highlight their idea. They wrote, Currently, the world subsidizes clean tech development while paying much more for a reasonably steady flow of fossil fuels. We're entering a world where we must adequately price the benefits of renewables to ultimately render subsidies unnecessary. But we must also find ways to value some fossil fuels for some time and increasingly for their capabilities as backup rather than continuous supply. A good example, and one we saw this summer in California, is shifting gas-fired power plants from all-day baseload to meeting peak demand. And that's the end of it. Two things here. First, if we rendered subsidies useless, we would see far less progress in the world of renewable development. Natural gas would service the current energy deficit and drive everyone's utility bills down. Second, hydrocarbons as a backup for peak demand sounds wonderful, don't get me wrong there, but we better have god-tier batteries to support baseload demand during the rest of the day and enough renewable energy capacity that intermittency is rendered useless. At this point, 
People are witnessing the energy crisis and now doubling down on renewables. I know I'm biased, but people tend to care less about environmental causes when their heat and internet are down for eight hours out of the day. Cynical? Maybe. True? Yes. Next, a quick review of the energy crisis developing in California. As you probably know, the state is hoping to close several hydrocarbon-based power plants. Now, power companies are doing their damnedest to secure enough power supplies to build the necessary infrastructure to support the removal of roughly 10% of the state's power capacity. This hasn't stopped state electrical grid operators from expressing concern, and why shouldn't they? California has routinely struggled with power outages in wildfire season, and this year's drought has only hurt its ability to generate hydroelectric power. Sure, you might be able to understand why they would want to get rid of these fossil fuel plants, as they call it, but the last remaining nuclear facility is also on the chopping block. Right now, there is one big hurdle to making sure intermittency won't be an issue, and that is the large-scale batteries. Now, don't get me wrong. While the capacity of industrial battery cells has made leaps and bounds of progress in recent years, they cannot operate indefinitely. The best available batteries on the market can really only be worked for about four hours a day before they need a break. Again, these are industrial-sized batteries supplying power to many households. I suppose that's where the basis of relying on natural gas plants for intermittency comes into play, even though you can't quite kickstart an entire power plant at the snap of one's fingers. On one hand, California is really leading the charge into renewable-heavy power infrastructure. On the other hand, it will come at the cost of higher energy prices, so I am excited to see if the project is a success, and we will certainly learn something from this large-scale experiment. Let's just hope the response is not to, again, double down if things get to be truly bad. But ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of today's episode. I received no questions about energy either in person or from our email account this week, so we'll just have to skip that for today. If you have a question about energy, you may as well ask it so that it can be featured on next week's episode. You can do that by contacting me, Tavis Killian, in any way, or by emailing podcast at rarepetro.com. Remember, the only stupid questions are the ones you didn't ask, and we do this show for you. We really enjoy engaging with everyone who enjoys the podcast, so if you're looking for more energy-related content, this episode's over, but you can find it on our website at www.rarepetro.com. Lots of research-based articles in many areas of energy that you are sure to enjoy. Thanks again for tuning into this episode of Monday Madness. This has been Tavis Killian with Rare Petro, and until we see you next time, take care, everybody. 